Dude, we are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Share us a notch of the And welcome to the Debated Podcast. I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm joined by uh, Chris Yu, who is the Executive Director of Technology of uh, the Technology and Public Policy Team at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hi, great to be here. Um, firstly, I'd like to uh, ask, because Brexit has obviously been something that has been predominantly in the headlines recently. And one of the main issues uh, over Brexit is the uh, border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Now, a lot of Conservative MPs have suggested that technology of some form or another could be used to prevent a hard border. What do you think of such suggestions? Yeah, well, um, I think you put your finger on it. Technology of some form or other. And nobody, as far as I can make out, has actually made a concrete proposal. So, um, like, I don't doubt in future... Uh, somebody will come up with something clever um, in the here and now. Uh, I don't think it exists. I think the uh, one of our former chancellors invoked blockchain at one point, but um, that didn't seem to go anywhere. Do you think that um, perhaps the the idea of using technology is sort of often a, a get out of jail free card for people who are legislating that will say oh there'll just be some technology and that will get around the issue yeah i think um there's a few um there's a few things that tends to happen when politicians talk about tech and that is one of them um and you see it in other instances like the one that strikes me most obviously is um some of the debate about end-to-end encryption on messaging services um, you know, you remember politicians of, you know, different um, different persuasions often coming to the same conclusion, which is, you know, yes, encryption and privacy, you know, are important. On the other hand, we also want to be able to, um, you know, access the messages of certain individuals of interest. And I can see the justification for that. Um, and then they just kind of push out, well, um, you know, somebody, you know, technologists are bright and clever and well-resourced. Somebody just needs to figure out an answer to this. Even when actually, when you look at something like encryption, it's sort of mathematically impossible, right? Mm, to yeah. build a system which is, is going to be secure, but also let people in via a back door when you think that it's a sensible situation to do that. Um, so, yeah, and it's one of the big struggles. And I think it stems from a kind of broader, um, you know, lack of understanding of just what is possible and how the world has changed. Um I mean, the other thing that you get, aside from kind of pushing it on for these magical solutions, is just a kind of head in the sand denial that anything is happening and people, you know, arguing, actually, we want to go backwards rather than forwards. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can have your sympathy with that or not. But the truth is, you can't go back. Mm. Um, now, before we move on to uh, discussing the uh, papers for the Institute, I'd just like to uh, ask, in uh, Anthony Giddens' book, The Third Way, he argues that a combination of the freeing nature of the welfare state and economic policies of Thatcherism, there became less of an emphasis on collective responsibility and more of an onus on individuality. Now, how do you think tech can help to restore a sense of community? And do you think that perhaps technology has been partly responsible for a... Um, wrecking of community a sort of a more own placing more influence on the individual rather than community 
Yeah, it's such a good question. It's one of the things which we, you know, turn over all the time um, when we're kind of debating this stuff, that you've got simultaneously, you know, you might say that lots of the technologies, um, you know, have at their core a very atomistic view of the world, that, you know, all of the kind of platforms and marketplaces that have been enabled by tech tend to boil things down to, you know, individual agents and transactions and, you know, destroy some of the, um, you know, some of the richer interactions that we maybe had in the past. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I can absolutely see the argument that it has also generated new forms of community and whether you want to, you know, think of that as being, you know, your kind of circle of friends on Facebook or whether you want to think about it as being, you know, a global initiative like Wikipedia. Um, there are new forms of organizing and people coming together that weren't possible before. So, you know, I'm not kind of in the camp of thinking that it's all kind of, you know, it's all benign or it's all terrible. Um, I definitely think it's different. And I definitely think the policy and you know, our politics to some extent have not caught up. Um, and, you know, and you see this really coming to the coming to the fore in our, you know, numerous different debates um, at the moment. And the big question for me is how do we, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff which um, has been challenging and, you know, serious missteps have been made by the technology sector. Um, but there ought to be opportunities you know, to reinvigorate democracy, to bring people together, to rebuild communities and find new ways of forging connections between people. Um, and the question is, you know, how do we turn the same energy that we've put into building these, you know, multi-billion dollar companies to those sorts of social purposes without breaking all the incentives and innovation that made them what they were? Mm. And um, just picking up on what you said, that it can uh, create uh, great connections. Uh, earlier this year, um, the Institute published a paper on education and technology. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very interesting paper. And one of the um, arguments that you uh, and the other co-authors of the paper make is that technology can be used to augment traditional learning resources. Now, how do you think that we can ensure that if we are using technology to augment traditional resources like uh, teaching in the classroom and the way that uh, children interact with teachers. How can we ensure that this doesn't depersonalize the, the learning experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think, um, you know, we talk about augmenting and enhancing rather than replacing. Mm. You know, it seems to me, even in the broader debate around like automation and the kind of digitization of, of different tasks and services that, um, you know, the very kind of real rich human interactions that you find in, in teaching, in care professions mm. are going to be some of the last that computers take over for us. Um, so the question is, you know, how do you do this in a way which is alive to not just the needs of the, the learners, but also enables teachers to do their best work? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, I think it's um, you know, there ought to be huge opportunity, not in terms of, you know, sticking you know, more iPads into classrooms, although, you know, there's obviously a place for that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, think about the situations where, um, you know, students can't afford textbooks mm. or um, you haven't got teachers who are sufficiently expert in particular topics in some parts of the world. Um, the idea that actually you can use the Internet to stream classes with, you know, the best teachers on the planet to kids everywhere mm -hmm. is incredible. Um, and, you know, when you look at the data on, particularly for the developing world, you know, the number of people who are like, you know, young people now who are likely to reach adulthood without the skills they need um, is terrifying. And there's no way without technology that we can solve that. Mm. And one of the, uh, the the other interesting 
points that you mentioned. It's the idea of um, linking classrooms and having sort of like uh, interaction between different classrooms that could be, you know, quite a distance away. Do you think that uh, something like that could be used as a, a good way to tackle the sort of like the negativity that uh, certain people have towards globalisation if they're more able to interact from a young age with people perhaps on the other side of the world? Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things that, you know, the Institute's been involved in for a number of years is, is facilitating these sorts of connections. Mm. Um, and the rationale is pretty simple, right? That actually, um, you know, if you haven't got those um, those relationships and that sort of exposure, then, um, you know, people in different situations in different countries um, can feel very distant and very, um, very opaque. Um, and of course, when you bring, um, you know, groups of young people together like this, what you realise is that, you know, sure, you might be in different environments and, you know, the towns and cities you live in might look and feel different and the stuff you eat for breakfast or lunch is different. But um, actually, you know, young people around the world have a lot in common. Um, and, you know, it's often takes that connection in order for people to really realise that and that people, um, you know, who've been, you know, they've often thought of as very different, maybe aren't so, aren't so different after all. Um Another uh, interesting point that is raised is um, you mentioned uh, Junilingo and Langbot as means of uh, personalising education, that, the, that these sorts of like platforms can be used to interact with students more. There are also uh, other companies like uh, Dada, ABC, which provide similar, um, uh, similar services. Do you think that there is perhaps a worry that if these companies are involved uh, with the learning process without any sort of um, overarching legislation, that they could perhaps not be um, doing what we would hope that they should be doing in uh, a learning environment. Yeah, I think it. Um, I mean, your question touches on a broader issue around the extent to which corporations now have such sway over you know aspects of our different aspects of our lives um, and so this question around regulation is as pertinent here as it is in many other many other domains and um, it seems to me that one of the interesting you know parts of the education debate is this kind of distinction between sort of personalized tuition and personalized curricula mm. and the broader kind of um, purpose of teaching in a learning environment um, and one of the challenges that I see in lots of the education technology is that, you know, most of the more advanced applications tend to be ones where you kind of apply the technology to break things down and drill people for, you know, test and, you know, um, uh, you know, be able to quickly retrieve facts, this kind of stuff. Um, some of the more interesting, you know, and more nascent arenas, I think, are the ones where you try to figure out how do you deliver a much more rounded educational experience that, you know, gives people the content, but also helps people with their critical thinking skills and their interaction and their interpersonal skills. Um, and that stuff's genuinely harder. Um, but I also think, um, you know, probably where most of the value is going to end up. Mm. Um, now, I'd just like to uh, to move on and to talk to a paper that the uh, Institute published that was written by itself in 2017, Technology for the Many, a Public Policy Platform for a Better, Fairer Future. It's a uh, great paper that I would encourage anybody uh, listening to read um, to, to get a broader um, understanding of uh, the issues that are tackled. And one question that I'd uh, like to ask regarding 
this paper is one example that you use of how drones uh, can help is that they can um, help in enabling hospital supplies to be delivered to uh, remote regions, often regions that have been hit by uh, floods or earthquakes or other such natural disasters. Do you mm-hmm. think that um, with the likes of Amazon proposing that they will be using uh, drones to deliver items, do you think that drones are here to stay and are going to contribute greatly to the future of aviation? That is such a good question. I think, um, in my mind, there's a couple of there's a couple of things in this, and they are related, but they're not the same. So, in the paper, we talk about the scenario where maybe um, you know the kind of the traditional infrastructure is either you know not present or has been um, compromised. Mm-hmm. You know, your kind of example of, of natural disasters where um, you know you then have the ability to start to move things like medical supplies. Um, in ways that wouldn't have been possible previously, and that can be genuinely life-saving. Um, and then I guess there's the wider debate about, you know, in sort of Western cities, you know, where do we think this technology is going to take us? Um, and it's one of these arenas where actually there isn't an awful lot, you know, yeah, there's, um, you know, a bunch of, you know, rules and regulations and legislation um, that existed from previous eras that tries to govern this, and there's a few bolt-ons, but nobody has really thought through um you know, what is the transformational potential? So what you tend to see is, you know, as the technology improves and becomes cheaper and more accessible, you see more edge cases where um, there are transgressions that feel difficult. And then we kind of patch that with rules to prevent, you know, particular sorts of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, stepping back and answering the question, well, it seems like some of our cities are getting clogged up with delivery vans and wouldn't it be good if we put some of those boxes in the sky? Mm. Um, I don't know, maybe that's a good answer, maybe it's not, but um you know we really struggle to have that conversation um so i think you know the kind of a lot depends on the regulatory environment and the extent to which we think we want to you know do a uh, you know kind of way forward that embraces some of this technology and is responsive enough to you know enable different use cases and contain the risks or whether we're going to be you know very much kind of in the mindset of we don't want things to be uh, you know too different too quickly um, you know, so you may well see actually other parts of the world move ahead faster than, you know, we ever would in London or or New York. Um, you know, you might look to the Middle East or to China potentially for, you know, how some of this stuff plays out in the near term. Mm. Um, uh, now, one of the uh, other points that you touch upon in uh, the 2017 report is that Labour has had quite a, the, the Labour Party has quite a strong uh, history and connection with technology, Harold Wilson's fi- uh, famous white heat of uh, technology uh, remarks are some. Do you think that the current Labour Party is embracing technology in the way that you think that it perhaps should, and in a way that uh, the paper suggests is the way forward? Um. I think we're probably a little bit away from that at the moment. Mm. Um, it feels to me like, you know, we talk a lot more, um, you know, we hear a lot more from the Labour Party about its plans to uh, nationalise the railways or whatever else than we do about the kind of big transformational impacts of of technology. Um, and I think that's a real shame because, um, you know, there's obviously, um, you know, kind of, you know, there's one kind of libertarian Silicon Valley view of, of how this stuff plays out, but there's no reason why 
um, you know, the same technology shouldn't be used for, you know, kind of serving the public interest um, and improving, you know, the lot of, um, you know, the general population. So that's the kind of arena which, you know, we think very strongly, um, you know, people ought to be paying a lot more attention to. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's just the Labour Party thing. I think um, actually, you know, in my mind, you know, a lot of the, you know, debates in tech are, you know, they may have a left or right element, but often the kind of much more dominant axis is this question of, are we going to embrace the future or are we going to resist it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there aren't kind of straightforward um answers to some of these trade-offs um but it's much easier for politicians who don't understand the technology to attack it mm-hmm. than um to you know say something positive about how they're going to make it work for people mm. um and you uh, mentioned then that uh, often because of the, the the lack of understanding that um politicians will attack uh, what they don't quite understand do you think that because of this sort of like lack of understanding and this irrational fear of technology that we both see in government and sometimes from the public that we're being held back from fully embracing technology in a way that can improve our lives yeah absolutely absolutely um and you know and i don't think it's um i don't think it's malicious Mm. right i don't think that politicians are are you know they're not stupid Mm. um but this stuff is genuinely complicated right and quite different from you know the world that we were dealing with in the past um and you know a lot of the you know responsibility lies you know with people in tech who maybe don't always explain this stuff in ways that um you know make it easy for politicians to grapple with either so i think there's this kind of you know the, the conversations that are misfiring on both sides but absolutely it's holding us back you know you think about um you know, the potential of technology in whatever field you like, right? Mm. Our ability to be massively improve the quality of diagnoses in, in healthcare or our ability to, you know, use existing technologies to massively improve the efficiency that cities run at so that they're not clogged with traffic and air pollution mm. or you know, a dozen other a dozen other areas. Um, and we're nearly near the level of ambition um, that you'd hope for amongst, you know, people who are aspiring to leave the country. Mm. Uh, now, just uh, touching back on the 2017 paper, one of the uh, factors that you mentioned, you've mentioned during this podcast as well, is that often uh, online uh, we can connect with people much easier than we did in the past and form sort of like, you know, communities online and all this sort of thing. Do you think that there is also... Uh, a danger that this uh, accessibility to being able to meet like-minded people has helped to uh, stir and help to recruit organisation organisations like um, uh, ISIL, uh, the far right in the UK and across Europe and in the US, and that this is something we have to be aware of when we're encouraging people to help create online communities. Yeah, yeah. So there's no doubt about it that, um, you know, it's become easier to make those sorts of connections. Um, And, you know, one of the things that, you know, people, you know, in in this kind of environment of commentary often talk about is um, the way the Internet has destroyed traditional gatekeepers, right? Be it, you know, traditional media, uh, broadcasters, political parties, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the forces that in, you know, in the past, you know, had... Um, you know, for economic reasons and business model reasons, 
um, but also just to do with the kind of structure of information, um, the ability to you know, control and um, curate some of those conversations. Um, and that's gone, right? Um, and so, you know, the people who say, well, you know, you should blame the internet for, you know, a particular electoral outcome or a particular candidate winning office. Um, you know, it's not the internet, you know, directly doing that, but it's certainly created the conditions in which, you know, it's much easier for extremist views to, to be heard and to gain momentum. Um, and so, yeah, one of the things that we've talked about um, from the Institute and our work is around this question of, um, you know, how do you build a new type of regulation to handle these sorts of situations? Um, and one of the big, you know, things for us is uh, all of these places, you know, whichever social network you're on or, you know, many other platforms as well, right? In some way, shape or form, they have uh, community standards or, you know, they call it different things in different places. But, you know, broadly speaking, right, the rules of the road, like what you are and aren't allowed to do and what kind of behavior is permissible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the bit which is really missing at the moment is, um, you know, there's a kind of legitimacy problem around those rules because they tend to be set unilaterally mm-hmm. in boardrooms in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think what's got to happen next is a much more, you know, engaged process where those sorts of rules and, and standards are set in consultation with, you know, with the people that use the platform, mm-hmm. with our elected governments, with civil society, um, and not just, you know, putting, you know, putting our trust in the hands of a few execs. Mm-hmm those decisions about what's allowed and what's not allowed and um, yeah but you know it's just genuinely difficult right that's a hard mm-hmm. conversation to have and one which yeah. a lot of companies are not really equipped for in the way that we might hope um now you mentioned that uh, a lot of these decisions are done uh, often uh, quite uh, at, a, at, a, at a distance to the people that um, they impact and they affect upon. now a lot of different politicians across the political spectrum have been talking about uh, breaking up social media companies and, and breaking up these uh, larger uh, s- social media platforms. Do you think that that would have a positive effect, that it could um, allow people to have a, a greater connection if the, they were sort of like smaller and you were able to connect with them easy, or do you think that that would have a, a negative effect on development? Yeah, you know, I, um, I think that actually it betrays a kind of misunderstanding of um, the world that we're now dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is that um, when you step back and you look at the um, like the economics, the, you know, the business incentives and the, the business structures of these companies and these sorts of markets, mm-hmm. what you often find is um, yeah, when things are born on the Internet like this, um, they have a tendency, um, natural tendency mm-hmm. to um be markets in which you have, you know, one or a small number of, of large firms tend to be successful because of the network effects and the cost structure and so on and so forth. So, you know, to my mind, in lots of situations, sure, you can have the conversation about I want to break XYZ company up or split it into two different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that and nothing else, it may only be a matter of time before either, you know, they roll back into each other mm-hmm. or something else becomes the large dominant thing and we're going to go after that next. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about a social network, right? So it has a lot of its value from the fact that, you know, you and all your friends are on it. Mm. Now, why don't I put 50% of your friends on one and 50% on another mm. and tell me whether that's more or less useful, right? It's probably not as good. Yeah. Um, so I think um, what we've got to figure out is, you know, in the past, we've used those kind of, of tools because they made sense for a world before the internet. 
looking forwards, we've got to figure out, look, you know, maybe we're not comfortable with some of the behavior of these companies or some of the outcomes, mm -hmm. but we need a different sort of regulation. So we talk a lot about, you know, how do you do this in a way which, you know, accepts the nature, the fundamental nature of the markets that we're dealing with mm -hmm. and then puts in different rules and provisions to ensure that the way companies behave is aligned with the way that society would like them to act. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's a very different approach and needs a different kind of mindset and different skill set you know i often say to people um you know you need a regulator which is going to be able to go toe to toe with some of these big technology companies which means you hire the sort of people that these companies can hire mm. right you've got to be as good at understanding algorithms and data and the speed at which they innovate mm. um you know you've got to be as good at that as they are mm. and the same way that you know the people that we appoint to regulate financial services know all the ins and outs of what it's like to work in the city and what you know the way these companies and marketplaces move um and i think we're somewhere off that at the moment um, now something that is uh, under review by the current government at the moment is hs2 do you think that hs2 will have uh, if it is completed will have a a benefit to the, the UK and the infrastructure of the UK? Or do you think that it's a white elephant? That's an interesting question. Um, and look, I'll be honest with you, I'm not an expert on, on HS2. Mm -hmm. I think um, that, I mean, there's something interesting in, to my mind around the kind of question of um, you know, level of economic concentration in the south of England mm -hmm. uh, and what you need to do to open some of that up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a kind of parallel conversation around, you know, what are the you know, when you look, you know, you step back and you ask the question, what sort of infrastructure do we need for the 21st century in a country like the UK? Mm. Then you've got your, you know, traditional components, including, you know, road and rail and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got the kind of parallel conversation about the other sort of technology and communications infrastructure, right? Fiber and 5G and everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you've got to take it all together. Mm -hmm. Um and um, you know, one of the things that we talked about in the paper was actually, um, you know, there's a pretty strong case to my mind for saying we ought to be embarking on a program of, of infrastructure build out that is incredibly ambitious mm -hmm. because, you know, we know you can look at the data on something like, you know, uh, fiber Internet penetration in the UK versus other countries. And, um, you know, a lot of places are a long way ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So connectivity, both real and and digital matter enormously um, but as ever right with all this stuff you see it with hs2 you see it with with heathrow and other arenas you know governments really struggle with these you know decisions that have long-term consequences and you know big kind of upfront costs um politically they're always the hardest ones to wrangle uh, now you just uh, mentioned uh, fiber optic internet uh, fiber optic broadband why do you think that we have had such problems with developing that in, in in Britain and spreading it across the entire United Kingdom as opposed to uh, in other countries? So I think some of it is to do, you know, the genuine questions around sort of history, history and path dependence, right? So if you're earlier to put in copper phone lines, then it's harder to make the case for tearing those out and replacing them with different technology. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. Um, some of it, I think, is a question of... Um, you know, where do you think you put the line between, um, you know, public provision and, you know, what you kind of expect the private sector to deliver? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, you know, with lots of the broadband debates, it's often been the case that, you know, we kind of expect private companies to reach a certain proportion of the population, but it's not very clear to them that there's an economic return on that, right? If, mm -hmm. um, if you know, they can't find the subscribers. And there is a, you know, there's an element of chicken and egg, right? Like mm -hmm. if people haven't got, you know, fast broadband, they don't know what to do with it. So when you ask them if they need it, they say no. Yeah. Um, so there's that kind of that part of it. Um, so, you know, you look at other countries and sometimes, you know, people have been much more deliberate about actually saying, you know what, we're going to hit certain targets or we want to leap up certain technologies or we think that it's critical the same way we think it's critical for people to have access to, you know, electricity or phone lines as did in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I think I would argue pretty firmly that, um, you know, for a modern economy, a modern society, mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that, you know, places should not be connected and able to participate, you know, I really struggle with. And of course, if you ask people, you know, these kind of amusing surveys of, you know, the order in which you give up various, um, you know, features of modern life, it's quite astonishing what people will surrender before they give up their um, their mobile phone and their internet. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Thank you very much uh, for being on, Chris. You're very welcome. Um, I'd like to just ask you uh, one final question. Of course. If there was any piece of fictional technology that you could click your fingers and would be there and would exist uh what what do you think that you would click your fingers and wish for well that is an amazing question <laughs> what, would I, what would i click my fingers and wish for um i think actually i mean one of the things that i struggle with is um you know there is so much being said and written and talked about mm. um and you know despite the proliferation of channels i still find it hard to kind of stay on top of of all of that yeah um, so something which actually kind of ingested the you know thousand documents in my reading list and told me <laughs> you know, the pertinent headlines would probably be uh, would be a good thing you know beyond that i would dearly love something which um uh you know fix the climate crisis right i think that's yeah. the thing which a lot of us in this arena um you know you know you obviously you know you can't pin all your hopes on the technology no. Um, and we're going to have to find some economic solutions to a lot of the near-term challenges. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the kind of magical silver bullet would be something that, you know, rendered that much less of a concern for us and future generations. Well, I think that was a great answer. And uh, thanks once again for being on the podcast. You're more than welcome to come back on any time you like. Fantastic. We've been really good. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast. Uh, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And I hope I will uh, that you'll be here for the next one.